welcome back to Elephant Parade. This is your very last episode. How do you feel just toying? I feel good. Glad to be sitting next to you again. Yes. I feel I like we've had a great season. I'm looking forward to our little um, bonus episode season recap. Re <laughs> recap. <laughs> uh-huh. Very excited. We're going to like talk about all our favorite moments and stuff. But right now, we're going to listen to your guys' clips and see what you had to say when you submitted. Very excited. Um, and if you didn't know thoughts? about that, it's probably because you're not following our Instagram. So, shameless plug. Yes. At elephantplate <laughs> underscore. Mm-hmm. So, this is a um, audio file from Simran. Let's see what she had to say. Something I feel like needs to be talked about more is intersectionality. And although it's been discussed this previous year a bit more, I feel like it's still pretty dismissed. And there was actually a case involving Elementary Graffinied where she had applied for a job. She believed she wasn't hired due to the fact that she was a black woman, but the case was almost immediately dismissed because the court said that the company had hired black people and they had hired women. So they said that there was no real race or gender discrimination when in fact there was both because Emma DeGraffneed was a woman that was black. So there was gender discrimination and race discrimination at play. And because they had not focused on the multiple barriers she was facing because of what made up her identity, they failed to realize how she may be at such a disadvantage. And this is why I think it's really important to discuss different parts of identity and how they can impact the social issues somebody faces. So religion, race, gender, and sexual orientation all work together to create such unique challenges. And these unique challenges are honestly really ignored. And that's why I feel like there needs to be more discussion on this topic. Great words from Simran. What do you think, Jessica Toyin? Um, I think she has great points. Um, I feel like there's been a lot of conversation about that, specifically that sort of intersectionality with race and gender. Um, like there's sort of been like this sort of discourse on like social media where people are like, um, people were talking about women's suffrage and how the fact that, um, African American men received the right to vote before white women. So people were sort of having this rhetoric where I was like, oh, um, sexism trumps racism or something mm -hmm. like that and it's like by saying that as like people who fail to recognize the intersectionality most likely because either they weren't dealing with that specific um intersectionality maybe there were white white women who were saying this but you fail to realize that native american women and black women didn't gain the right to vote till 1965 so it's like you're saying as a white woman, oh, race trumps a little, or sexism is more prevalent than racism. And it's like, you're failing to acknowledge that people deal with both of those things. And legally, we see it again with like things like, um, like say, for example, um, identity identification, um, racial identity identification. Um, a lot of people are talking about how a lot of Middle Eastern people and Latina people like when it comes to filling out legal correspondence mm -hmm. or whatever yeah. they're like grouped in with white people and it's like why <laughs> is that done people. why is that done most likely to sustain the white majority but then when you look at statistics it's like people will say oh white people deal with this too and it's like well first of all how does your law enforcement interact with whiteness like how mm -hmm. how, how are people class how, what people are being 
grouped into whiteness, first of all. Mm. And then even on the sexuality level, like she was saying, um, when you talk about a lot of like people of color say that their identity, their racial identity comes before their sexual identity mm-hmm. because I think we said this on a pre- yeah. pre- in a previous thing that it's something that is visibly acknowledged, mm-hmm. not really um, either verbally or internally acknowledged mm-hmm. um, as opposed to like um, racial, uh, it's not racial, sexuality. Mm-hmm. And that comes up when you have people who they then ignore like people of color who intersection with both in the LGBTQ community and as a person of color because they'll say things like, oh, I'm illegal in 70 mm-hmm. countries. Like, I'm sure you've heard that before. Like, oh, yeah. I'm illegal in 70 countries. White Americans who are, who are at home, <laughs> white LGBTQ Americans who are at home and like, I'm, a le- I'm illegal in, in 70, 70 countries. countries. And it's like, you realize there are gay people who actually live in those countries, right? <laughs> Now, you're a white American complaining about a country you'll never visit, uh, if, uh, people who you probably will never interact with on a daily basis. And you're saying, if, hypothetically, if I, I was go to there. go there, I would be illegal. Yeah. Like, basically... Like, if anyone found out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, I would be contraband, even though, like, uh, no one would really know no, unless, no. I, unless I made it known. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there are people who actually live there. Who are actually LGBTQ, who are actually being oppressed and killed. Even here, like, there are different vi- ways, like, someone's um, queer identity can affect them, not just mm-hmm. because of their white household. Like, mm-hmm. you just have to acknowledge what barriers they face internally, too, if they're queer, especially people of color that are queer, because it also affects them differently. Mm-hmm. Especially when you look at... Their, um, their hate crime rates are higher. Higher, yeah. Especially um, even trans, uh, black trans women, their mm-hmm. uh, rates... Um, like, violence. Yeah, it's higher amongst them, which is a problem. But obviously, those issues get kind of wiped out when I don't want to say it, but like white queer folks talk, like speak up and talk about like how oppression against them is like in other countries where they're illegal. It kind of drowns out all those other voices that are trying to talk about their queer experiences in um, a POC household mm-hmm. or. Yeah, with their other intersecting uh, intersecting Mm. identities, it kind of drowns their voices out. That's the problem with having white, um, Mm. like, other spaces that are predominantly white. Mm -hmm. Especially, like, when I was saying, when I was talking about feminism, like, feminism is pretty much white space right now because a lot of white women speak up on how feminism looks for them, Mm -hmm. right? And for them, a lot of it is, like, not shaving their arms, like, not shaving their armpits, um, like, attacking the patriarchy, uh, patriarchy by, like, doing the opposite of, like, what a man would technically want, right? Mm-hmm. But for, for POC women or other people, it, it's more of, like, how can I get liberated from men by the system, by how black women are treated, how, um, brown women are treated. They mm-hmm. look at it in a different lens because, obviously, the patriarchy, the patriarchy would affect them in a different way. Mm-hmm. So even I was th- I was thinking about this the other day, but I was like thinking about how lesbian women and um, straight women or even bisexual women are affected differently by the patriarchy. Because when you think about it, straight women, uh, straight women and bisexual women, they can still create relationships with men where the men can think, oh, I still have a chance with her. Right. Mm-hmm. So you can have a relationship with a man where it can get you places because they feel like 
I can give power to you because I feel like I can sleep with you or have a relationship with you like mm-hmm. that. But for lesbian women, obviously... It's like, you don't exist Or lesbian people in general. Yeah. Therefore, I Yeah, obviously that's, like, very homophobic and sexist, but you see how, like, those, yeah, those things, things interact, interact with each other. So mm-hmm. I feel like it's really important to acknowledge things like that, especially when it comes to law cases. I feel like a lot of it is not intersectional. It doesn't acknowledge mm-hmm. everyone's identities and struggles. That's a really big part of it. It's having representation on these court cases to say, hey, I don't view it that way. I don't view liberation in this way. I view it in this way. So people can actually see how they can be benefited from this law. Yeah, and not only in legal spaces, but also in, like, medical spaces Mm -hmm. as well. Like, um, the intersection of, like, one in general, um, they say that, like, if you bring a man with you to a doctor's appointment you're more likely to, like... Taken seriously. Yeah, like, be given the proper treatment or give be given more of whatever medication or whatever thing you need. Mm-hmm. If you have, like, a man, a man saying... They're next to you, like, saying, like, yeah, she's been feeling in pain rather than mm-hmm. just a woman by herself saying, I'm feeling yeah, in pain. because her pain is And not then, like, when you add race on top of that, there's a reason why you have, like, higher rates of death, of infant mortality in black women versus other races. Mm-hmm. Like, I think... I'm not sure if it was the UK or the US, but it's, they were like, um, black women are three times more likely or, yeah. um, to die in birth than white women. And it's because of they those, take like, their pain seriously. two things. And then when you add disability on top of it and mm-hmm. mental illness, the way that mental illness is treated in people of color communities isn't the same as it is in, like, sort of mainstream, the white community. And I think that sort of speaks to, um... This recent movie that came out in Kanto, mm-hmm, and yeah. they were talking, they were doing like character analysis. They were having discourse on like different characters and each of their conflicts. And oh what my god, yeah, them. I didn't exactly. And a lot of them were just like brushing over a lot of the characters' like mm-hmm. trauma simply because they were people of color, in my opinion, mm-hmm. or they were I disconnected from that sort of. Like, this is a person of color aspect of their life, specifically Colombian. And a lot of these people have never been exposed to the type of violence that people experience. Generational trauma. Yeah, in Colombia. And, oh my God, yeah. Like, just dealing with those guerrilla fi- fighters and, like, literally being displaced and stuff like that. And it's because, like, of course mm-hmm. you won't experience that because, I mean, understand that because it's not your experience. But then, like, when you go and... Ob- and approach this character, or even a person in real life, you have that sort of single-faceted view of them, and you mm-hmm. don't approach them with the multifaceted view that comes as a result of that mm-hmm. sort of intersectionality. Mm-hmm. And that's just, like, trauma, not to mention people who have ADHD or actual, like, sort of mental or physical disability. The way that they're sort of interacted with is different. Like, there's a reason why... Um, well, one, if you're black, you're more likely to have a fatal encounter with police. But if you're disabled, it jumps up, I think, like, ten yeah. times. Like, I, want, I would search it up just so I can give an accurate statistic. But, okay, so as of 2018, databases say that across the country, half of the people killed by police have some sort of disability. Mm. So that's just, like, straight up half of the people. Dang. Oh, my God. So, and this disproportionately impacts Black people, it says. Mm. So, and that's according to the Washington Post. And 
they make up 80% of unemployment, people with disabilities. So it's like, that's something you need to understand when understanding racial and, sex and um, sexual identity, that like even ableism um, also comes into play with that. And ableism in the LGBTQ community as well. So it's like, it's just so many intersections. And if you start to understand them, then a lot of these things can be addressed in a way where it's actually meaningful rather than just, I don't know, telling people to shave their armpits. <laughs> I feel like you can obviously talk about your experiences from your own identities, but you shouldn't be talking over other people and telling, like, they should be experiencing something in a certain way. Like, if I'm telling you about, like, my experience, obviously you're not going to be like, actually, no, it's not like this. Like, you're not mm-hmm. supposed to be experiencing sex and sexism in this way. It's, like, not how it works in, like, the real world. I can't, like, obviously it doesn't work that way. I have a different experience as do you. And one thing I didn't even touch on is class. Like, yeah, class that's okay. just, that's just a whole other thing. Yeah, like it how- just elevates on how many levels intersectionality actually works. Mm-hmm. It shapes our experiences. So I think it's really important. Thank you for that, Simran. Next up, we have Joel. Let's hear what he has to say. So in 2012, Facebook manipulated the content of nearly 700,000 uh, users um, in in, in a psychological experiment to garner or to measure whether or not uh, emotional states are contagious uh, via social media networks as they are in in-person uh, interactions. Um, you know, the ICO, the Information Commissioner's Office, actually investigated the experiment in order to determine whether Facebook had infringed on UK law and people were very outraged and I believe that they had every right to be um, because, you know, I think this, like, if you think about what they're doing, they're tweaking what people encounter in their newsfeed to reduce and increase certain emotional phrases. And I feel like that reflects a huge potential for social media to manipulate people's emotions, which is a sinister enterprise that belongs exclusively in a dystopian sci-fi novel. Um, but I, I was also, in, and the other thing is that research, especially in the realm of psychology, right, because that's what they were doing, a psychological experiment without people's consent. Um, I think it should be bound by ethics. Academics who have to do similar experience in a university setting would need to obtain informed consent from participants. And informed consent is the process of letting participants know the key elements of the study and the nature of their participation. Moreover, Facebook conducted this experiment without an RIB, which is an institutional review board, a federally mandated group that is charged with evaluating the risks and benefits of human participant research at any institution. Um, but I have a, you know, a, another question about this, you know, broadly. I think it, it relates to this in some sense. So we know that if we look around us, uh, politically speaking, things are quite hostile and volatile, and some people feel like uh, civic discourse isn't as as accessible as it used to be or as it should be or as it could be. Um, so, and, and social media is blamed uh, frequently for the creation of this bubble mentality where people of a, a certain political affiliation or ideology are exposed to the same thing repeatedly uh, because, you know, that those are the kind of posts and uh, videos that they 
react positive to react positively to such uh, through sharing or liking. So I was wondering whether face whether it's ethical for Facebook to uh, regulate people's newsfeed so that uh, from time to time, occasionally, people are exposed to alternative perspectives. So you know, if you're Republican, maybe uh, or conservative, you'll get um, you know a liberal uh, post every once in a while in order to sort of prevent uh, political polarization in order to prevent that bubble mentality that people are, that people think are responsible for the fact that uh, civic discourse in this country is no longer accessible and viable. And, you know, that's a, that's a pretty noble cause, you know, civic discourse, because that's essential to how democracy functions. Yeah, no, I've thought about, I think we've talked about this before, but like how many times, like, you're just set in the same mentality that you always are because of mm-hmm. the things that you always see online. Like Joel said, um, like if you go on Instagram or Facebook, the things that you always usually see or support usually pop up, right? It's mm-hmm. not something that goes against your beliefs. So you end up going with the crowd, just basking and marinating in the same ideas that you always have. So get very narrow-minded from that. And mm-hmm. especially if you're always in that like space that bubble you start getting brainwashed and like that happens like in real life situations too like if you live somewhere long long enough where certain ideas or ideologies are fed to you you start to believe them and like wholeheartedly like stubbornly believe them even if you don't have like other materials or ideas provided to you to go against that Mm -hmm. i don't know if it's about ethics because obviously what they're doing right now isn't very ethical because if you're, because it is technically a way to brainwash people, like, civically, I guess, um, through social media, but it'd be interesting if someone were to challenge that and say it isn't, um, I guess, ethical to put on advertisements or have an algorithm that continually feeds you only, like, liked content, mm-hmm. because if you look at it, through the eyes of politics, obviously it's not ethical because then people people lives are at stake because of this algorithm, because of the way that Facebook advertises ideas. Yeah, I th- it's an interesting thing to think about, and um, the his um points sort of reminded me of this analysis video that I was watching, and. You're gonna be. You're gonna think like what when I say this, but it was a Harry Potter analysis video. Analysis. Analysis. Yes. <laughs> a Harry Potter analysis <laughs> analysis video. I'm so sorry. It's okay. I can't speak. Um, but it was basically how it was. It was a sort I think of. I know what this is. Mm-hmm. Close look at the House of Slytherin specific, specifically, and this mm-hmm. idea that they take people at a young age and they sort them into these houses where the idea is that. Mm-hmm you're going to be in a house of people who are all like you. Mm-hmm. And and throughout the entire series, there's this sort of like idea that Slytherin is evil, it's evil kids, and all the evil kids go there. <laughs> and yeah, you that is sort it. of like never really redeemed, even by the end of the series, mm-hmm. when you have like everything's falling apart and the house of Slytherin like just goes off somewhere and like they they're just like i'm out and they all leave hogwarts as it like falls apart and even like during the arc i'm if you don't watch harry potter you're probably Uh, lost but point is 
it's evil kids and it's a house of evil kids in the school meanwhile all the loyal kids go together all the smart kids go together all the it so forms so cliques basically yeah and it's political. like you're you're raised with people who are all like you and what happens when you're when that happens all of these traits become extremified so the trait the 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 technical trait of Slytherin is ambitious, right? Mm. But really, they just they're just like power hungry, basically. Mm. And what happens is, if you're surrounded by power hungry people, you, you like power. get more power hungry, and then you foster. It becomes sort of a breeding ground for people who are who for the evilest wizards of the wizarding <laughs> world all come from Slytherin, and it's like. At one point in the in this movie series, Dumbledore goes. Sometimes I think they sort too soon. Like maybe it should be like fifth year before they get sorted, or fourth year. And that sort of applies to real life as well. You have people, especially teenagers like us, who are getting on social media earlier and earlier and earlier in their age, and they're interacting with these algorithms earlier and earlier and earlier before they even have a chance to sort of be around out. enough people in their lives to organically find out what it is that they want out of life or what it is what their opinion is on things instead they're given this algorithm and they're they sort of just get pulled along in like sort of like a current of whatever whatever um their specific demographic is doing so you might have a kid who like literally it's sort of like a pipeline um that's oh my god i can speak so much on the right all pipeline and how it like lures young boys on like these internalized misogyny like misogynistic thoughts and like pulls them into that yes. world where they like develop into like right-wing politics it's, yes it's so yes bad. that's literally what i was gonna say i saw this tiktok i, I keep pulling from the internet yeah but i know. saw this tiktok and it was like certain video games specifically like if you go up into their online community these kids like they start off as just like innocent kids who like like a specific game i'm just gonna say random like call of duty for example i don't know and then they like go on these like forums where it's just about the game and then all of a sudden five months later they're like on a pride boys freaking oh forum facebook group and it's like it's that easy because it's like you just sort of get pulled along it but the question of is it ethical i think it's like when you tell it's sort of the question of what he was saying in the beginning when he was talking about the experiment with with Facebook, where it's like Facebook sort of intentionally went out of their way to observe how how people, people emotionally interact. interact or react to certain content they're giving to sort of like perform a study or whatever, so they can I guess further develop their algorithm or whatever. And it's like if you were to say that if you were to say to Facebook once again, okay, can you intentionally do this, mm-hmm. like expose people to things? create another algorithm where you expose people to like blah blah blah. it it begs the question of is it sort of the is it sort of these technology responsible technology companies responsibility to make sure that the human essentially the human mind is not sort of mummified by their apps and Mm -hmm. their things and that's an interesting question it's like it's like if you're saying that big tech companies have this responsibility in order to protect our democracy then I would argue, like, how how can you justify that? Meanwhile, you have things like the Common Core curriculum in school. You have states like Florida actively banning the teaching of 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 um critical race theory. Cri- not even critical race theory. Just any um any racial thing that upsets your upsets kid, them. you can sue the state for. When you have things like that, and it's like, these are actual education systems. These yeah. are systems where it's like, it's, I would argue, it's a school's job to Can't expose see. students to different points of views or ch- um, to different perspectives than they receive at home. 
and it's like you have laws and policies like that and then you're going and then you're saying like it's the internet's job to mm -hmm. foster a diverse place essentially yeah no i do agree with that but i think the thing is especially on social media it's completely different because it like encourages you to keep on that pipeline of wherever you are. Mm -hmm. Well, as in school, like I feel like there are other people that challenge your ideas. Mm -hmm. Again, it depends on where you go to school actually at this point because a lot of people are banning, you know, certain things that upset them in school, which is terrible. Like you don't want to expose anyone to other perspectives, to brainwash mm -hmm. them. But especially online, it's really easy to lure someone into a place where they're most like vulnerable at because they're probably at home like on their laptop feeling safe mm -hmm. while really they're being sucked into something that's potentially dangerous for them and other people like you said for proud boys that's, that's dangerous to them and other people mm -hmm. like they'll just be sucked in and like or even like oh, facebook on the opposite end like you have someone watching a show like euphoria mm -hmm. and it's like a really young person and it's, 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 it sort of calls out the unfortunate of things because obviously you also think about like just because a large amount of people are consuming a specific thing, does that mean that that specific thing was targeted to them? Like oh, people yeah. argue that euphoria isn't not. targeted but to teenagers. For Facebook, but Facebook, it kind of is. Yeah. It, like it is targeted. But it's Facebook, Facebook mm -hmm. has rules and restrictions mm -hmm. and it, it, it does offer tools to specifically parents to sort of... Yeah. Uh, police the content that their kids watch yeah. same with like youtube not and... just kids though it's also adults at this point because they're yeah, like, spreading true. propaganda on there basically mm -hmm. and like even if they do get blocked or you know say that their information is false people are so into whatever like side they're on that they refuse to believe that information is false in the first place mm -hmm. like um especially when um you know trump got kicked out of office people were spreading lies that like he's still in office and other people believed them and, and like they kept kicked him off of twitter it. and then a lot of people argue that a lot of people even democrats argue that it wasn't twitter's place to mm -hmm. sort of do that exactly. kick trump off mm -hmm. and it, it's really interesting because at this point social media is such a big component of our lives and we have to st start thinking about like whether it needs to be regulated or not because mm -hmm. it is affecting other people's lives but I think to a certain extent, it shouldn't be necessarily more regulation on, like, how the algorithm works. I think we just need to change it to a point where you aren't necessarily, like, always showing people the same thing. You're not adding something else, if you get what I'm saying. Because, mm -hmm. like, what Joel talked about was adding something else to make sure that their content is being diversified in their mm -hmm. feed, right? Why not just, like, lessen the amount of like posts that pop up in their feed in the first place yeah uh, like in, rather than an algorithm that always is reactionary where it's like oh once you Make once you randomized. like a picture of a cupcake i'm gonna send you a thousand pictures, pictures of, cupcakes. of cupcakes yeah just rather like, it's lessen just like the intensity of it yeah le lessen the intensity of it and, and i think i think that's more of the right thing because mm -hmm. There's a reason. There, it's not like a, a natural progression for someone to be mm -hmm. liking like Fortnite cupcakes. videos, and then all of a sudden they're but like, that's how they're the algorithm like works. You'll get sick. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Yes. Um. Thank you for that, Joel. Next up, we have Shaharazan. Let's see what she has to say. Hi, Alfred. I'm Shibari. Today we're going to talk about school. <laughs> Not what plus one is equal to two. 
but we're gonna get into the deeper meaning of it. POV in general, especially in America. Let's start off with a question. When was the last time you saw yourself represented in a story or a book that you read in ELA class? I can answer that question for you right away. Never. <laughs> Never in my life have I felt represented in any book I've read in ELA. Books focus on African-American literature has to do with stereotypes or how African-Americans were barbaric or how they were cheaters. And it basically has never shown me in any way. It only shows things through a negative perception. perception. Books like Census, Things Fall Apart, all of those are examples of stereotypical and negative black representation in the school system. When you look at any other POC book that they may include, in the school system, it also is stereotypical or from a negative perspective. Meanwhile, all the white British literature stories are told from very positive perspectives and, let's be honest, are about old white men who take over people's homes and do as they wish, and yet we read all of these books all the time and we're expected to feel sorry for them. No words on that. But disregarding that, let's just say that we need a new school system. We need a new ELA system. We need to read books that we can relate to instead of books that have nothing to do with us. I cannot connect to Holden, who's a rich white boy with mental problems. Even the mental problems part, it's about him having so much money. It's like, how am I able to see myself in this story? One of the flies, Catcher in the Rye, and I'm sure there's millions more you guys can name, including Hamlet and any Shakespearean book, where you can say you see yourself in none of them. Point is, we need books that we can relate to. Let's read The Hate You Give. Let's read Dear Martin. Let's read books with positive LGBTQ representation. Let's read books with positive PLC representation. Let's read books with positive Asian. And just let's read books with better representation that we can relate to. Let's read modern books. Why are we reading books from the 18, 1700s? How am I going to see myself as an old white male in the 18, 1700s and then proceed to be forced to feel sorry for them? We should get stories we can relate to and our whole school system, our school system should understand that rather than push back the books that ELA teachers recommend which shows that it's not the teacher's fault, it's the DOE's. So let's do something about that. Let's change the books we have to read. Thank you, Shaharazan. I used to think about that just twine. Honestly, I was literally just thinking about this the other day and how important the books that we read in school is to the American psyche and also to our personal psyche and the example i was looking at was specifically one our like the american psyche on gender and race paired with the books that we read because oh my god the other day i was just listening to this analysis of goldilocks specifically and it literally opened my mind and i just i was just like oh my god you're right and they were like how is it, girl. how is, no, bro, literally, how is it, how is it that the American curriculum had this book, Goldilocks, taught it to every child in America, and the book was about a little white girl who broke into, into someone's house, did not get punished for it, ate their food, slept on their beds, s- sat in their chairs, slept in their beds, and 
every single child in America throughout reading that book was just, oh, I hope she doesn't get caught. I hope she doesn't get in trouble. I hope she doesn't get hurt. And what about the big- we were sympathizing with this little white girl. What does that teach the American psyche? It teaches the American psyche that white children can do no wrong. Mm-hmm. White women, especially little girls, can, can do, do no, no wrong. wrong. And it sort of indoctrinizes us into always having this anxiety for the feelings and emotions of white women, women, especially white children. And another one, Hansel and Gretel. (laughs) Yes. Just so many. Just like white children who just go places that they shouldn't. And throughout those books, like, yeah, yeah, you can argue that there, there might be a little moral, like, oh... Um, the moral of the story is don't don't go into a stranger's house. But really, the main thing that we got throughout those books was just like, oh, I'm fearing for this person. Not necessarily this person should be punished or this person shouldn't have done that. It's more like now that they've done that, I hope they don't get hurt. I mm-hmm. hope they don't. I hope something doesn't bad that doesn't happen, happen to yeah. them. We are supporting them while exactly. they're working. <laughs> exactly, and it's like they're like we're like yeah, the house candy. Of course, I would go in. Like no. Like, you were eating this woman's house. No one <laughs> forced you to, to vandalize her property. Like, <laughs> And then they had us believing that the that the, the witch um, purposely made this house in order to attract children. It's giving um, girls wear their outfits to attract men. That's what it's giving. And then it's it's giving victim blaming. Like this girl's house. Like what if yeah. what if she just wanted to make a house out of candy? Yeah, I'm sorry, laughing. And then she, she was like, yeah. eating <laughs> eating her house. It's like, just comical like, at this point. Like, and all of these books always like with the bears, with the witch. It's always some sort of like racial, either racial undertone or anti-Semitic un- undertone. Undertone where it's like they always describe these character characters that whose rights or whatever is being trespassed as like a a different species um either an animal or or something like that the witch the witch which is always depicted as like some sort of jewish character caricature and in my opinion if you think about it okay if if there are other species if you were human and you came outside and a different species like termites were eating your house would you not kill them (laughs) like like always some sort of justification where it's like we our loyalty lies with whatever the white child either usually female antagonist is and that affects the american psyche and when you grow up with that and then throughout your childhood your early early childhood it's always stories about white children and their struggles and it's always a happy ending for them even though their actions are always at fault and then the first time you go to read a book where the main characters are black, it's chains. Yeah. Or, um... It affects the way you view yourself. Yeah, you it's like, saying, where yeah. the characters aren't necessarily doing anything wrong. They're not breaking into people's houses. They're not eat, eating people's houses or taking their food or stealing or, like, committing crimes like they do in the, in the Outsiders. They're literally just existing, yet they're still dealing with almost usually more than the struggle than these white characters do 10 times as much if anything and they don't get a happy ending how does it feel like she said to always be having some sort of struggle story mm-hmm. it's never a happy ending mm-hmm. and it's like some people argue that it's to give a realistic view but then you're the just the day, condemning at the end of the day yeah. it's like should you teach slavery in a positive light but that's not the point the point is let's teach more than slavery. Mm-hmm. 
the, black the a, a black child's first experience to their history shouldn't be slavery. Mm-hmm. It should be let's t- take as much time on the Golden Coast kingdoms as we do on the Roman Empire. Let's spend as much time on the Mughal Empire as we do the Indian indentured servitude mm-hmm. system. It shouldn't always just be struggle stories. Yeah. Our, um, Chinese Americans' first exposure to their own stories shouldn't be the Chinese Exclusion Act. Mm-hmm. Because in order for there to be a Chinese Exclusion Act, mm-hmm. what, what, what Chinese people who should have migrated there to the first place? What were all these Chinese people doing at first? The way that these textbooks are worded and these stories and narratives are worded, it's always like they just appeared yeah. and then this happened to them. It's always, it's always passive. It's like yeah. this happened to them. Yes. It's not the, what they did. The Chinese did. were excluded from migrating to America. It's not white people excluded Good Chinese them. Americans after they first advertised to them to come, come to their to country, mm-hmm. literally to take advantage of their labor. And then when they realized, oh, labor wages are going down, let's exclude, exclude them. Same thing that they did to to Mexicans and are doing to Mexicans now mm-hmm. and it's like or Central Americans and it's like if we learn about these things one we prevent repeated history and two it gives it gives people who learn these things to to understand their motives mm-hmm. it's like if you're a white child and every time you're learning about POC characters it's always things happening to them it's always as if these the people of colors aren't even active in their own narratives yeah. mm-hmm. where it's like things are just always happening Happens to them and then maybe a white person comes and saves them. They're not very active in their own on their own narratives. If that's the only literature you're being experienced to, of course you're going to think that like, oh, black people are just lazy and they're just waiting for people to save them. Or these immigrants are coming to our country and they're spreading all these things and they're taking our jobs and blah, 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 blah. Of course, you're not going to think of the motives and the reasons as to why they come. Of course, you're not going to think about Abuela and why she, why she's making all of her children be perfect and blah, blah, blah and her motivations. Yeah, you stop reasons. understanding other people and especially mm-hmm. yourself. Because, like, if you're, like, so white, not whitewashed, but, like, taken over by, like, white authors that are always talking about, like, their experiences, mm-hmm. you almost invalidate your own experiences because it's, like, you don't see yourself in any of these books. So it's like, mm-hmm. you can't have anyone to relate to. Because a lot of kids do actually, like, rely on books to take them away, have something to relate to, right? So I know I did. It was a form of, um, coping is a form of escapism. But, like, when you're always reading those type of books, it's like, you, you like, start thinking like them, too. And it's so bad. You never get to experience what, or process, like, how you may view, view the world. How, like, you may like view everything through your lens it's like that same effect that that um joel was talking about with facebook with, with mm-hmm. like social media like where it's like if everything is the same if you don't get exposed to different perspectives whether it be on social media or in literature whether it's your own experiences or other people ex- uh, other people's experiences you never find out what the world has to offer mm-hmm. you start becoming very close-minded mm-hmm. you start anyone. you start becoming a slytherin you start becoming- you'll, 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 whatever attributes and things are being fed to you they'll be exaggerated and mm-hmm. so one-sided and so narrow-minded mm-hmm. that you'll become something that is almost like 
unnatural and unreal. And, and it really constructs your, like... Mm-hmm. It really, like, constructs your, like, internal biases, too. Because, like, if you start seeing like, these stereotypes, like, repeated over and over again, you start to believe them, like, see them in real life or try mm-hmm. to see or them in real life. Or internalize them, even if they're about exactly. you. Exactly. If, like, someone... Yeah. It's about, oh, my God. The internal... I feel like in media in general, like, the way people are portrayed, especially, like, people that you usually identify with, the way they're portrayed are seen to other people and you, too. So you start to believe what they say and what you see in that character. It's mm-hmm. so like, for example, like, I remember as a kid, I feel like Robbie was, like, the best representation I had as a kid on Jesse, mm-hmm. right? And, like, the way they use his, like, Indian accent, like, as stereotypes and everything... That's, like, the first thing people compared me to, like, out of everything, right? So, like, I started to, like, internalize my own identity as something that I shouldn't be proud of or, like, I should suppress so, like, mm-hmm. I could be, like, other people so they wouldn't make fun of me. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure so And that's because the that. only representation of your own identity that you had was mm-hmm. negative, and mm-hmm. people looked at it negatively. Mm-hmm. Even so just, like, having a lack you, of it. You sort of wanted to approximate yourself to whiteness because mm-hmm. that's what exactly oh my god i wanted to be white for a long time i remember that i was like oh, I, like people like stop making fun of me it can be so much easier like, a lot of internalized like racism too like mm-hmm. i'd be like oh, brown <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was so bad yeah looking back on it i don't know how and the worst thing is like i grew up in a poc school mm-hmm. but, like there weren't any brown kids but like it was still a POC school, like, everyone was either, like, Hispanic, Black, but at the same time, because of that lack of representation, it's, like, hard for kids to see or, like, differentiate, like, the stereotypes between, the, like, the actual person and the stereotype. Mm-hmm. And don't blame them, because, like, obviously it's something they were fed through media and books and their parents, too, because obviously, like, parents in the news. But it's a very nice talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you guys for sending in your audio clips. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I know, I we did. <laughs> hope you enjoyed this season. We will be back, promise, and on social media. Yes, we'll keep uploading things pretty much every single day. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, bye now. Bye.